You are listening to a sermon from the Axis Church in downtown Nashville. For more information, please visit theaxischurch.org. Welcome, I'm Jeremy, one of the pastors here at the Axis. Um, <clears throat> and I want to, before we get going here, I want to um, call attention to that song we just sang. Um, it was written by a man named Horatio Spafford, um, who was living in Chicago at the time from Europe. And during the great Chicago fire of 1871, his business, his lawyer, his law practice was burned up. His four-year-old son died in the fire. Um, so he was going to move back to Europe. On the journey back to Europe, uh, he sent his wife and four girls on ahead uh, to make preparations. He was going to move there uh, following their arrival on their way. The ship collided with another ship, and his four daughters died. Um, his wife sent a telegram saved alone. And uh, he made his way to Europe to find his wife and no children. And along the way, the captain of the ship told him that this is the approximate site where your daughters died and the ship sank. Um, and that's when he penned the lyrics of the song that we just sang. Uh, Those sea billows roll. Whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well. Though Satan should buffet and beat me down, let this blessed assurance control me in the midst of all that. And that Christ knows my helpless estate and he's shed his blood for my soul. Let that control everything else that I might be experiencing and feeling and fearing. I say that because this past week during our readings of Psalm 119, yesterday, a verse popped off. I even shared it with my wife Jill yesterday because it's a powerful phrase and even as I read it to her, it, I choked up thinking about it. It says this in Psalm 119.71, It is good for me that I was afflicted. It's easy to whine and complain and have remorse and all these things, which are all beautiful emotions for us to experience. But he says he worked through that to where he said, It is good for me that I was afflicted that I might learn your statutes, that I might learn the truth about who you are. You see, how do you write a song like it is well through all that suffering? How do you write those lyrics down for people to sing decades later? You're taught by the affliction. It informs you of things. It, it teaches you that the doctrines that you know up here, it, it, that affliction moves the knowledge down to your heart to where you experience that control that he spoke about in, in the lyrics of his song. Doesn't mean that he's not sad. It means there's a point to the sadness. It's a, there's a point to the affliction. Um, so we all know what it's like to be afflicted in some way over these last several months in many, many ways. Over the last several decades, many, many ways. Throughout the history of our country, many, many ways. May we use this affliction to produce and see us drawn in to learn. Let us be humble to learn through the afflictions of life and not just escape the affliction or numb the affliction, but let's learn something through the affliction, which is mainly the truth about who God is, which is at the core of what we're trying to study here in these six weeks of Gospel 101. We're trying to see the truths that we know up here move far beyond just our, our head, our knowledge, our brain, down to our hearts, where it actually controls us. I, I just love that word. Let this blessed assurance control. 
that control that he wrote about in that song. That's the point. So our hope in this time today and across these six weeks together as we focus on the gospel is that we'll better grasp the basic truths of the gospel and that we won't just settle for intellectualism, but that it'll go down into our hearts to produce a humble, obedient response to what it is that we know, to where we're walking the walk and talking the talk, to where the theology actually makes a difference in our lives and in those around us being able to understand the implications of the gospel to, and how it plays out practically speaking, right? Like we know the right answer, but often we don't live the right answer. And our hope is that through this time, we'll learn to better live the right answer. Now, if you didn't get a sermon guide when you came in, um, go ahead and hop up if you want right now and go back there and grab one. Great example right there, Miss Rachel. Good job. Because um, it's going to really help you through our time together. There's journals back there, stickers. They're not tattoos, but I guess you could try it. Um, but get a sermon guide. It's really going to help you, okay? Go ahead, get one. Get two. Um, so week one, we looked at in Christ. And get a sticker. Put the sticker on front of the journal. It's going to be a great. We're going to have a great time today. It's going to be big fun. Um, and we've got lunch afterwards. So anybody wants to stay, we've got free lunch coming in. We're going to throw out some tables, eat together, talk, learn who we are more. Uh, learn who we are more. Uh, we're going to talk about grammar. Um, no. So week one, uh, we looked at in Christ, um, unpacking our union with him. It's the wheelhouse of the gospel. And we did so through understanding more the big story of the Bible, the meta narrative, the grand narrative, okay, of creation, fall, redemption, recreation. Bible is a big book made up of 66 books and letters, okay, separate letters. But it's got one story, and it all flows in that one one storyline, creation, fall, redemption, recreation. And we looked at the in Christ portion being that redemption aspect, creation, fall, redemption, what it meant to be in Christ, that union of, of being with Christ instead of with Adam in sin, with Christ in righteousness. And then last week, week two, we looked at the growing cross and the diminishing cross where the, I unpack sort of like the, a mark of Christian maturity is where we're growing in our awareness of who God is in his holiness. And we're also growing in our awareness of who we are in our sin. So it's like, man, he looks better, but at the same time, we're looking worse. The more we learn about who he is and how wonderful, we learn about how like jacked up we are. And the growing cross kind of fills that void. The idea was the cross fills the void in between God and us because he reconciles us to the father. Uh, but if we don't have a growing cross, we have a diminishing cross and we we no longer look at God as impressive, and we think of ourselves as impressive, so the cross isn't really that big of a deal. So it's a diminishing cross, a small cross, because we were pretty good to begin with, and God is just all right, so we kind of just average out somewhere in the middle with a tiny cross. Um, and uh, there's a lot of problems that come from living that way as a Christian. But then this now is our third Sunday. We're working through Gospel 101, and today's uh, sermon is entitled, My New Identity. My new identity. Now, I'm going to book in our time this morning with the reading of a story from the Bible. I'm going to begin by reading a very familiar story from Luke 15. Uh, it's going to be through the, the message translation uh, by Eugene Peterson, where he kind of just puts his own word and spin on uh, the prodigal son story. Okay, I'm going to read it to you, and then I'm going to preach, and I'm going to read it to you, and then we'll go to communion. Okay, um, And that's all I'm going to do about it. I'm not going to say anything else about it. 
So Luke 15, it goes like this. There once was a man who had two sons. The younger son said to his father, Father, I want right now what's coming to me. So the father divided the property between them. It wasn't long before the younger son packed his bags and left for a distant country. There, undisciplined and dissipated, he wasted everything he had. After he had gone through all his money, there was a bad famine all through that country, and he began to hurt. He signed on with a citizen there who assigned him to the fields to slop the pigs. And he was so hungry that he would have eaten the corn cobs of the pig slop, but no one would give him any. He came to his senses. He said, all those farmhands working with my father sit down to three meals a day. And here I am starving to death. I'm going to go back to my father and I'm going to say, father, I've sinned against God. I've sinned before you. I don't deserve to be called your son. Take me on as a hired hand. He got right up and went home to his father. When he was still a long way off, his father saw him. His heart, the father's heart began to pound. His father ran out. His father embraced him. His father kissed him. And the son started his speech. Father, I've sinned against God. I've sinned against you. I don't deserve to be called your son ever again. But the father wasn't listening. He was calling out to the servants, quick, bring a clean set of clothes and dress him. Put the family ring on his finger and sandals on his feet and then get a grain fed heifer. Amen. And roast it. We're going to feast. We're going to have a wonderful time. My son is here. Given up for dead, now alive. Given up for lost, now found. And they began to have a wonderful time. Again, I'm going to read this at the conclusion of our time this morning. I won't say anything else about it. But I want you to consider it later today. I want you to consider Luke 15 later on this week. I want you to discover why it is that I'm putting it forward to you today. Okay? Now, when you consider the kind of person that you want to be, when you think about the person that you want to be, spiritually speaking, what comes to mind? In, in what ways do you want to grow spiritually? Do you have a strategy for your spiritual growth? Do you have a spiritual life plan, so to speak? You know, we have, we have lists and we have goals. We have aspirations for ourselves and our family, right? There's a lot of us who have financial goals. We've got real estate, investment, property goals. We've got physical health goals. We've got career goals. We've got educational goals. But what about spiritually? Do you have goals, spiritually speaking? Do you want to flourish spiritually? Do you want to grow in your understanding of the gospel? Is this something you think about? Is this something you give thought to? Well, if one of your friends said, hey, I'd like for you to create a uh, spiritual life plan for me. If you could like, help me develop spiritually, what, what would you include? What would you encourage them to do if, if you formed this for them? What would be important? What would be essential? Where would you start? Maybe consistent time in study or praying more, sinning less, uh, reading more, knowing more of what God wants for my life, like God's will. That could be a goal. Finding victory over that sin that just keeps tackling you. 
Maybe that'd be a goal. To lead your life better, to lead your family better, for spiritual stability, maybe. Increase faith. To hear from God. I like to learn God's voice. Growing, like last week, growing awareness of my sin, growing awareness of God's holiness. That could be a goal. Well, with all our spiritual goals and aspirations, I believe that if we all combined our hopes and our goals together and we listed them all out, I believe that the common, that the common consensus with all of that would be that we, would, we want to be healthy, fruitful, and effective Christians, right? And that would be the consensus. I don't think anybody would be like, man, I would just, I'm trying to work to be dry and boring and unfruitful. Like if I, if I could just be ineffective spiritually, that would just, be, I'd be nailing it. I just really want to do that. I don't think that's any of us. Well, this sort of thinking was in line with what Peter in, in his writings, uh, as he was trying to give some of this thought to the young Christians. He says this in 2 Peter 1. He speaks to this. He says, his divine power has granted us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him, through the gospel, who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, union with Christ, that divine nature. You might be able to participate in that divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that's in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, this is one of the leaders of the early church, the leader of the disciples, Simon Peter, an apostle. He's encouraging Christians then and now for this reason, make every effort. The, the every effort there is a, a tenacity, right? It's to be tenacious. Would you consider like your spiritual life, a, a life of tenacity, aggression, fervor, zeal, right? Spiritual life, ten tenacious. I love to say that when I'm hooping, playing defense. It's like, let's be tenacious, right? Derek knows what I'm talking about. We hoop. Um, but he says, be tenacious and make every effort to supplement your faith. Supplement your faith. Build along with your faith. Add to your faith. Don't just be content knowing and believing certain things. Try to build this out practically and develop your spiritual life. He says, add to this virtue and knowledge and self-control. He says, add to this steadfastness and godliness. Add to this brotherly love with affection, with love. For if these qualities are yours and they're growing, they're increasing, they're developing, they keep you, these things will keep you from being ineffective and unfruitful in the knowledge of of our Lord Jesus Christ. So Peter says, if we pursue these things, self-control, brotherly affection, love, steadfastness, knowledge, if we pursue these things along with our faith in Christ, that will be fruitful and effective. So when you think about this, this is kind of Peter's list to the early church. When you think about this, like how are you progressing in this way towards fruitfulness and effectiveness as a Christian? Now I'm sure that there's good reasons and legitimate reasons why you're not growing spiritually like you want to, right? But Peter gives a very real possibility as to why we're not growing spiritually. And he does it in the following verse, in verse 9. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he's blind, 
having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Whoever lacks these things, they're too nearsighted. They've forgotten their new identity. They've forgotten their righteousness in Christ. They have forgotten that they have been forgiven and cleaned from their sins. Again, this is where we're going to spend some time today. The gospel is not the entry point to the Christian life only. It's the pathway of the Christian life also. Peter's saying you're living with a small view. You're nearsighted. Your eyes aren't up, high and lifted up, seeing the Lord high and lifted up like Isaiah in his holiness. Your eyes are nearsighted. You're, you're looking down. You're looking at the things of this world. You're, you've got aspirations. You're building your career. You're saving up. You're, you're, you're focusing so much on the things of this world. He's saying you're nearsighted. Here, in essence, Peter's teaching of this passage is this, that we're not fruitful or effective because we're not living with the gospel and its promises at the center of our beings, at the core of our existence. We're not remembering. We're not focusing on them. Or to put it another way, we're not fruitful or effective in our spirituality because we're functionally and practically living as orphans rather than adopted children of God, rather than a son and daughter of God. We've forgotten that we've been adopted. We've forgotten that we've been forgiven. We've forgotten that we have been made new and that we're cleansed. And because we're not living with the gospel and its promises at the center of our existence, we're not fruitful, we're not effective. Rather, we're floundering, we're drifting, and we've got small joy, small peace, and big fear and big worry. Yeah, our, our spiritual life and development in the gospel is somewhere kind of in our psyche. Like we think about it every now and then, especially on Sundays. You know, we think about it, we sing it, we hear it, but it's not priority. The gospel's not at the core. It's not how we're defined. It's not how we find our worth. It's not our all. Something else is our all. But Jesus said the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which when a man finds it, he covers it up. And then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has to buy that field. And the kingdom of God is also like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value, he goes and sells all that he has and goes and buys that pearl. He prioritized it. He valued that one thing as superior compared to everything else. Another way of saying it is everything else became redefined in its own value by how he valued that one thing. Everything else is worth giving up for the sake of that one thing. Jesus says in Matthew 6, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Not yours. Seek his righteousness. Seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Then all these things will be added to you. We'll work through all these other things. First, that priority, that centrality, that core, that foundational pursuit. He says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever who would save his life is going to lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. You'll be fruitful, vibrant, effective. Denying myself to follow Jesus, not denying myself to follow Jesus and, and. But there's that centrality, that the truth of who he is. All seems to be understood through the lens of following Jesus, not merely following our own desires, our own preferences, or small earthly plans, but keeping a big heavenly perspective. And Jesus then 
He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. This all language is hitting at the core of our existence, the center, like mission control, the controlling center of our lives. So Peter hears this teaching of Jesus and he's trying to guide the early Christians into what it means to live out with this all being at the very core of who we are. He's hitting at our identity in Christ. And the way that Peter sees it, the gospel's got to be the core essential part of our existence. And if it's not that way, we're drifting, we're unfruitful, and we're ineffective. But that's not all that Peter says. Peter also says that if we do continually remember and rehearse and focus on our new identity in Christ, remembering that we've been cleansed and forgiven, that as we remember the gospel over and over, that'll slowly free us from having to fake our righteousness. It'll free us from having to work for our righteousness. We'll be free from pretending and performing as we live the Christian life, and we'll be able to experience what we're looking for, and that's true change, lasting change, real change. And as a result, our lives will be fruitful and effective. See, the Bible teaches that at the root of our existence, because like we looked at in week one, the fall, the fall, sin comes into the world, right? Through our obedience, our rebellion against God and his way. Because of sin, at the root of our existence, we're all struggling and fighting to be good enough. All of us are trying to feel and believe that, that we've got value somewhere. We've just got to find it. We're, we're desiring to fit in somewhere. We all desire to belong. It's part of our nature. We want to fit in. We want to belong. We want to have a place. And there's this war on the inside. There's this struggle in our minds. There's this battle, this struggle, this searching. We're searching for significance. We're searching for worth. We're searching for identity. And it plays out in a thousand ways. We deeply desire to be accepted. We want to be approved. It's as if every day we're living on a stage performing in front of everybody and we're trying to prove to them and ourselves that we're good enough. And the Bible teaches that we're designed this way, that we actually were created by God to find this satisfaction, this identity, this purpose, this meaning in God. And it's sin when we try to find that identity, that meaning, that worth in something else other than who God is and that relationship with him. All of us, we long for a righteousness. We're looking for a right standing. We're seeking an identity that tells us that we're important and that we're significant. Each of us, we long to be accepted and approved. We want to be told by somebody important that we're important. And for a lot of us, to be overlooked or bypassed or ignored, that is like a, a temporary hell right now that we're having to live in. We don't like that. I mean, no one shows up to hoop basketball and loves not to get picked. There's 11. You get five on five. Nobody likes being the 10th guy picked, but no one definitely likes being number 11 and having to watch. So then we, we don't get picked. We go sit down. And we're thinking, man, I want to get better. I want to be somebody that they, like, want. I want to be picked. And that plays out at jobs, with raises, with promotions. That plays out in many, many other ways. And I'm not saying that that in and of itself, that desire is wrong. 
There are aspects to these desires that are God-given and God-glorifying. But where we find our home with this stuff, where we find our satisfaction to these desires, that makes all the difference between loving God and loving ourselves or other things. See, the Bible tells us that because of our sin, we're separated from God. And this leaves each of us feeling alienated, separated, and orphaned. It leaves us feeling like we don't belong, and we desire to belong. There's this longing that's in all of us to be accepted. And this longing comes from our sin. So we desire to be accepted. We deeply desire for our hearts to land, to settle, to stop its search and its work, but to find home, rest, peace, acceptance. We love walking to a room that's full of people where we just feel accepted, where we just feel like, you know what? I belong, I belong here. I have a place here. You see, this longing that we have, it didn't exist before sin in this way. Our sin brought about this void, like this vacuum, and the resulting longing. And ultimately, our sin is rejecting God, rebelling against him, choosing to be orphaned, choosing to run away from him, rebelling against his authority. And in our desire to be accepted, Part of the way that this plays out is we're trying to prove that we're important. We're trying to prove to ourselves and others and God that we're good enough to be welcomed back into that relationship. We feel that void. We know it's missing. So I'm going to work real hard to show you that I'm sincere. I'm really, really going to try this time. I'm going to prove it. Well, I can't sustain that. Well, then I got to fake it. I've got to pretend to look better than I am. I've got to work real hard. I've got to earn this right standing. Well, Paul talks about this in Romans 10, 3. He says, they did not know the righteousness that comes from God and sought to establish their own. That's what I'm talking about. This is what we do. And we do this hundreds of ways every day. We, we try to please God by what we do. And when we can't do that, when we know that it's still not enough, we work real hard to make ourselves out to appear better than what we actually are because we know that we're not good enough, so we've got to fake it. We're trying to secure our own righteousness and identity apart from Jesus. But now here's the key to change. This is what we're looking for. We're, we all want sustainable change, lasting change. We all want to be on a continued trajectory of improvement. I would say that's true with many parts of our lives, if not all of our, all our lives. We want this. We want sustained improvement, right? But here's the key to this as a Christian. This is a key to lasting change and fruitfulness and effectiveness in our walk with God. Here's freedom from this exhausting little rat race of an existence, okay? We have to recognize these sinful patterns in our lives and move towards repentance. So change comes through frequent repentance, Early, often, ongoing, and always. Early, often, ongoing, and always. Repentance. Recognizing these sinful patterns. Now, here's what I mean by that. It's when we begin to notice I'm drifting towards isolation away from Christian friendship. Could there be something more going on in my heart? Why am I drifting in this way? Why am I intentionally staying away from those people? We're recognizing it. We're, we're throwing a flag. Like it's, we're flagging this as a potential hazard, potential deeper issue. Um, recognizing when I begin to steer clear from those people who, are, who live with a growing cross mentality, like we looked at last week. 
I don't want to talk to them. I know what they're going to tell me. I don't need to hear that again. I need some real advice. I don't want to go there. Hmm, is there something, is there something more going on? It's, it's seeing when I go long stretches with little to no prayer and little Bible intake. It's flagging that saying, there's probably unhealth here somewhere. You're learning how to flag that. It's catching myself when I drift from attempt to attempt, grasping for purpose and meaning. And here's what I mean by that. We're trying to get noticed. We try to get noticed. We try to get attention. We want to be appreciated. Even if it's negative attention, we need attention. We're running to get attention. We feel this void. I'm not important. I'm going to find that I'm important. So what am I going to do? I'm going to pout. I'm going to get quiet. That works. It gets you attention sometimes. I'm going to get angry. I'm going to get loud. Yeah, that works too. I'm going to create drama. I just got to, I got to, I can't stop, can't be thinking about this. I got to create, create a mess. I'm going to run towards pornography. I'm going to run towards my secret sin. I'm going to begin to continue. I'm going to, I'm going to drift slowly into drinking alcohol more and more and more and more around bedtime, a little bit more each day. Flagging this as maybe this is something more than just appreciating a good bourbon. Maybe there's something more here. I get snippy and rude and short. Why is that? Could there be something more? I go out and spend a ton of money. Is there something more there? Now, I'm not saying it's true. I'm just, it's a mark of maturity is you begin to flag these things as potential hazards. And I believe we're getting healthier when we, when we see that there might be something more to all this than you just being tired, hungry, upset a little, bored, or part of your personality. There could be something more. We're growing spiritually when we learn to flag these frustrations, when we begin to flag these feelings of frustration as potential attempts at me trying to work for purpose and identity. I'm trying to prove that I'm worth something. I'm grasping for control in some area. I'm trying to prove to something to myself apart from resting in my identity in Christ. So I come home, and I feel like I've been pushed around, taken for granted. It's not going to happen in my house. You do this, and you do this right now. You obey me. This is not okay. I'm like, whoa. And you're just there thinking like, and you begin to flag it like, why? Like, what's going on? I'm not just disappointed they didn't obey. Like, there's something going on. I'm trying to gain control because I don't feel like I'm important. When we flag these things, that's great. Let's do so, but don't stop there. Again, we must recognize these sinful patterns and move towards repentance. Then comes the true hope we're looking for. That's where the power to change comes from. Again, change, um, increasing uh, trajectory of health, right, and improvement. This change comes through frequent repentance, early, often, ongoing, always. Now, repentance, I was taught growing up that repentance was, okay, if you're, if you're running this way, if you're walking this way in sin, right? Hey, boys, love y'all. My boys on the back row. Check it out. Okay. Re repentance. <laughs> I see y'all over there too. I'll call y'all out. Um, just kidding. Um, repentance, this is what I was taught growing up. Repentance is I'm walking this way and I'm sinning out in this way. And 
Repentance says do a 180. That's always seemed to be the term that pastors used back in the day. A 180 where you just, you leave that sin. You turn your back on that sin. And then you go in, I don't know, who knows how many other directions you begin to walk in, right? But just don't walk that way. Well, true repentance is more focused on where you're going than where you're coming from. So repentance isn't just saying no to this sin, because you could go right back into another sin. It's not saying, hey, there's a pit, don't fall in it. Okay, I won't. And then boom, turn around and go right into another pit. So it's not about what you're coming from or what you're running from. It's about what you're going towards. So repentance is turning to Jesus to find what you thought could be found over there. Repentance isn't just turning from sin, because then you're going right back in sin and sin and sin. Tell me where to run to. I know what to run from. Give me a direction. Don't just point out the negative. Give me something positive. So repentance is turning to Jesus and finding what you thought could be found elsewhere. Like cutting a new path through the woods, if you did that as a kid, and if you do that with your kids, repentance road, so to speak, gets easier to travel the more you walk down it. It, for instance, it's easy to say, I'm sorry. That's not confession nor repentance. But it seems like that's all enough. When our, when our kids mess up, tell them, you're sorry. I'm sorry. Okay, now we're good, right? Whew. There's something more than just saying, I'm sorry. It takes time. You're cutting a road. It takes time. It takes humility. It takes prayer. And it takes deep thought to repent to say to others, will you forgive me for fill in the blank? Because I honestly think that what I was after isn't just control and having things nice. That anger really wasn't for you. I'm angry with myself because I'm really looking for, for this. And you begin to describe something that's found in the gospel that's yours, that you were trying to attain this other way, this shortcut. But boy, that takes... A, that takes Again, time, humility, a lot of prayer. Um, but when we, when we do sin against one another, confessing and seeking forgiveness before others is important. And then confessing and thanking God for his forgiveness and repenting before him. This is what we're to be doing, this ongoing repentance. It's, it's learning to put the gospel to work in our lives. It's learning more and more that the, that the gospel is for Christians too. This is where applying the truths of the gospel to our practical everyday lives comes out. We've got to learn to continually process our new identity in Christ over and over, allowing our new righteous standing of son, daughter, adopted to become central to our existence. It's keeping the truths of the gospel ever before us. It's seeing life through the lens of the gospel. The key to change, the key to being fruitful and effective in our Christian walk is learning this ongoing preaching of the gospel to ourselves. And if we're not minute by minute, depending on the work of Jesus and his righteousness, processing these truths, reminding ourselves, we're going to drift to depending on our own work. We're going to drift to our own righteousness. But Christian, those who are in Christ, you are accepted. <laughs> And you're only accepted through Jesus Christ and his work, not your work. Christian, you're no longer your own. You've been purchased by the blood and life 
of Jesus Christ. You belong to God. You are the possession of God. He owns you. He has redefined you entirely, and you have a new identity. Peter talks about this in 1 Peter 2. He says, you, speaking to Christians, he says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation. You are a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Now, once you were not a people, you were orphaned, but now you're God's people. Once you had not received mercy, now you have received mercy. Borrowing from Hosea chapter 2, Paul writes the church in Rome. He says this in Romans 9.25, Those who are not my people, I will now call my people. And her who was not beloved, I'm going to call beloved. So Axis family, we've got to allow our new identity in Christ to redefine who we are practically, living it out by faith that it's true. And in your sermon guides that you have, the pamphlets that you have, you're going to see a list between orphan and adopted. And as you look over those, the orphan list might seem too familiar, too real. But through Christ and his work, we can believe this new list of what it looks like to be adopted. And as we process more frequently and more deeply the gospel, we'll lose that old orphan mentality that plagues us, that cripples us, and that throws shame on us. And I believe the longer you're a Christian and the more you're flourishing and growing in your faith, the more the child of God list is going to become familiar and the more the orphan list will become strange. And be reminded that the gospel says that not only did Jesus take our bad to make us righteous, he also gave us his good to make us righteous. The giving of this good, this perfect life for us, it's called passive righteousness. It's considered passive because you don't work for it. You don't earn it. You don't labor for it. You just get it. You just receive it by faith. But it's when there's fear or guilt in our lives as Christians that this passive righteousness is out of our sight. Christ and his work is kind of hidden by our current circumstance and our situation. And when we don't depend on Christ's righteousness by faith, we've got no other option except to work real hard for our righteousness rather than resting in the work of Jesus Christ. We labor, we toil, we strive, we work real hard to prove that we're good enough. And with our innate passion to be righteous, our hearts are always, every time, going to drift towards works. We're going to drift towards proving our righteousness. We're going to drift to being an orphan when we lose sight of the gospel and its promises that you've been adopted. And this plays out in thousands of ways. Dr. Richard Lovelace wrote in his book, The Dynamics of Spiritual Life. He says this, uh, Christians who are no longer sure that God loves them and accepts them in Jesus, so they're unsure of the gospel promises. Christians who are unsure of this, apart from, of course, their present spiritual achievements, they're subconsciously, radically insecure persons. Their insecurity shows itself in pride, a fierce defensive assertion of their own self-righteousness, and defensive criticism of others. They come naturally to hate other cultural styles and other races in order to bolster their own security and discharge their suppressed anger. So we, we have to, we have to learn to early and often preach the gospel to ourselves of our new identity of what Christ has done for us and repent of our false righteousness, our self-righteousness, 
and repent of attempting to establish our own righteousness outside of Christ. We've got to preach the gospel and its promises to ourselves specifically that God is pleased with us because he's pleased with Jesus. You see, knowing and believing this, our sin is no longer scary. Our sin is no longer embarrassing. And it'll end up leading us to a more authentic, beautiful worship of who Jesus is because we realize, you know what? He died for that sin too. And that's going to lead us into having much more fun as Christians. It's going to lead us into a liberation where we're feeling light and free because we're no longer defined by that sin. We've been redefined as believers by what Christ has done for us because of our union with Jesus. The Bible considers that union as adoption. And Paul speaks of this in Romans 8. He says, for if you live according to the flesh, you're going to die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you're going to live. For all who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of Adoption as sons and daughters by whom we cry, Abba, Father, or Dada, or Daddy, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are, in fact, children of God. And if we're children, then we're heirs. We're heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. And then Paul also speaks of this exact same adoption in Ephesians chapter one. He says, blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ, that beautiful union with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him again, beautiful union in him. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world long time ago that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he's blessed us in Christ, in the beloved. And we're prone to drift from our new identity of child of God and daughter of God. This is how we drift. Most of the time, we live as orphans rather than children of the king. And this will always lead us to be unfruitful and ineffective. Rather than resting and abiding in the Father's love, we no longer keep the gospel truth central, and this leads to us working to impress him. This leads to gain his favor, proving to him that we're good enough for his attention. We try living up to his expectation and requirement of perfection, seeking his approval through, approval through our efforts alone. But we've got to continually repent of this orphan-like mentality, of this diminishing cross. And doing so will help ground us and return us to a clear understanding of our true identity as a son and daughter of God. Friend, you don't have to do anything to secure God's love and acceptance. It's taken care of. Jesus has secured that for you. That's the perfect life of Christ. That's the cross. That's the empty tomb. It's settled. It's settled. Now grabbing hold of these truths with our whole self will cause us to worship Jesus more because we'll be more aware of what he's done for us. But our new identity is in him. He's earned it. It's settled. It's unshakable. It's finished. You remember back at the baptism of Jesus in Matthew chapter 3, there was a voice heard from heaven. As Jesus was being baptized, there was this voice that came from heaven that says, 
This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. God is pleased with Jesus. God is satisfied with Jesus. It doesn't really take much faith to probably believe that part. But it takes a lot of faith to believe that God's pleased with us. But because we're united with Christ and adopted into the family of God, because God accepts Jesus, we're now accepted on the same terms. So now, when he looks at you, he says, this is my beloved daughter in whom I'm well pleased. Do you believe that? This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Do you believe that? It's the truth about who you are. Christian, you're never going to outgrow your need for the gospel. You're never going to outgrow the need to be reminded of this truth. As long as you're alive, you're going to need the gospel. You need it more today than you ever have. You're going to need it more tomorrow than today. And let's continue to process this gospel over and over and over. Now to those who are yet to be Christians that are with us in the room, friend, you can be adopted. All this can and will be true for you. If you would just call out to God by faith through Jesus, asking him to help you believe. Like I read this morning, Psalm 119, 132, praying this beautiful prayer. Father, God, turn to me and be gracious to me. Confess your sin to him. He's faithful and just to forgive you of your sin and to cleanse you from all your unrighteousness. In fact, Romans 10 says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God's raised him from the dead, you're going to be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes on him will not be put to shame, and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Believe this. In closing, I want to reiterate that as we seek to grow spiritually, which is a sign of maturity, we've got to recognize and flag our tendencies of working for our righteousness, trying to prove that we're worth something. We need to recognize and flag when we're attempting to earn our righteousness and to prove that we're important. We need to quickly see this and repent of this and believe once again the gospel and let that become the pattern of our life. Paul says in Galatians 4, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you're sons and daughters, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, again, crying, Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. So there was once a man who had two sons. The younger said to his father, I want right now what's coming to me. So the father divided out the property between the two boys. And it wasn't long before the younger son packed his bags and left for a distant country. There, undisciplined and dissipated, he wasted everything that he had. After he'd gone through all his money, there was a bad famine all throughout the country, and he began to hurt. He was signed on with a citizen there who assigned him to the fields to slop the pigs. He was so hungry, he would have eaten the corn cobs in the pig slot, but no one would give him any. He came to his senses. All those farmhands working for my father sit down to three meals a day, and here I am starving to death. I'm going to go back to my father. 
I'm going to say to him, Father, I've sinned against God. I've sinned before you, and I don't deserve to be called your son. Take me on as an orphan, as a hired hand. He got up, went home to his father. Now, when he was still a, a far way off, his father saw him. His father's heart started pounding. His father ran out. His father embraced him. His father kissed him. And the son started his speech. Father, I've sinned against God. I've sinned before you. I don't deserve to be called your son ever again. But the father wasn't listening. He was calling to the servants, quick, bring a clean set of clothes and dress him. Put the family ring back on his finger. Put sandals on his feet. And then get a grain-fed heifer and roast it. We're going to feast. We're going to have a wonderful time. My son is here. Given up for dead, now alive. Given up for lost, and now found. And they began to have a wonderful time. God loves you. He sent his son Jesus to live for you, to suffer and die for you, and to beat death for you. Christian, Jesus gave you his spirit to give you life and to wake you up that, you know what? I'm no longer an orphan. I've been adopted. The spirit of God tells you that. And this is all grace. We remember this now, the finished work of Jesus through communion. As abandoned orphans left alone, unprotected, uncared for, and ignored, you run around every moment of every day looking for sustenance. You're starving. You look here, you look there, you're looking everywhere. And it's up to you. You don't search, you don't eat. But it's never enough, and it's exhausting. However, as a son and a daughter, you go to the Father, your Father. You sit at a table, your Father's table. You sit in a seat. That's your seat. And you're served food, specifically prepared with you in mind. Food that's exactly what you need. Friend, rather than scavenging for food throughout our lives, alone, hungry, scared, Jesus has prepared a table for us, a feast, in eternal community and communion with him and his people, the church. We get to feast on the kindness and goodness of God in perfect peace forever. He did this by suffering by being brutally murdered and dying in our place. And so now, when you and I catch ourselves pretending that we're orphans again, we can return back to the table of the king and we realize that's our daddy. Peter says in 1 Peter 2, for you were straying like sheep, pretending that you didn't have a loving shepherd, pretending that you were an orphan with no loving father, but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Christian, this is true for you. Those who aren't Christians, this can be true for you. You can come home. This is what we remember now through communion. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your love. Thank you for your determination. Lord, thank you that we can't outwit, outsin, outrun your grace. 
Jesus, thank you for being such beautiful evidence of that love for us in sending you to us. That commitment, that determination, that resolve that you had in your gut to go through whatever you had to, to earn us back and adopt us back into your family. Thank you. It meant you being orphaned, even as on the cross you said, Father, uh, um, why have you forsaken me? You were forsaken there on the cross. You were orphaned, in a sense, on the cross from your father, torn from your father, so that we could be reconciled and restored back into that friendship with your dad. And now, the Spirit comes to us, and we thank you for that Spirit giving us life, making us aware of this adoption. We get to realize that we're loved and cared for and that you have all that we need. Father, forgive us when we look for these things other places. Lord, help us enjoy life and the things that you give us. Help us enjoy all the stuff you've given us. But Lord, help us not look at those things for our source of identity or worth. Help us find that in you and you alone. Remind us of these things now as we remember your work for us. Add your special blessing this time of remembering. In Christ's name, amen. Well, family, uh, those at home, you have uh, communion elements prepared. You can go grab those real quick in the kitchen. Uh, but here we've got cups and they're on tables throughout the room. Um, but you're going to take, take these cups and you're, the first layer you're going to pull back and it's going to reveal a wafer, which is uh, symbolic of the life of Christ, the body of Christ given for us. Then you're going to pull back another layer and that's going to reveal the juice, which is symbolic of the blood of Christ poured out for you in his death. Friend, this is how we can be adopted. It's through this right here, through what this is symbolic of, that we get to experience a relationship with God no fear in life, no fear of judgment when we die gives us hope for an eternity in paradise and peace with God and with one another. It's beautiful, but it's only through Christ. So I want you to think through these things. I want you to journal some stuff, think through some things, confess, repent, do significant soul work and soul searching. And then when you're ready, I ask you to grab a cup, peel, taste, remember, remember, and remember what Christ has done. You all can do this when you're ready. You're listening to a sermon from the Axis Church in downtown Nashville. For more information, please visit theaxischurch.org.